Welcome to the Social Fishing Podcast. My name is Reese Creed. I'm a passionate angler and I want to share as much as I can about the sport we all love. On this podcast, we speak to incredible anglers, sharing a wealth of priceless knowledge, all to help you reach your fishing dreams. Thanks for joining us today. Now let's begin. Welcome guys to episode 25 of the Social Fishing Podcast. Now, if this is your first time here, thank you so very much for joining us. And if you're returning back to another episode, you know how these all go. And thank you for tuning in for another edition. And I hope you get something out of this episode. Now, you've made a very good choice because this is one of the best episodes yet. We, we have some great episodes, but this one here, I'm super excited to share with you. I, I learned so much in it. So you have tuned in and you've decided to listen to an incredible episode that you were going to learn so much from. So this is episode 25 and I was lucky enough to interview Lubin Pfeiffer. Uh, Lubin is an absolute legend when it comes to fishing. He is a highly, highly accomplished angler, writer and presenter. He speaks on stage, has been in, in films, he's written hundreds of articles for a range of print and online publications. As I said, he's been in films like Cod Almighty with Rob McKenzie and has also co-hosted uh, TV show episodes of The Big Angry Fish. Now, this fella fishes a lot and I mean so much and only one thing can come from being on the water and fishing so much is an incredible wealth of knowledge and that is what Lubin has. Now, he fishes for both trout and cod and a range of saltwater species, redfin, basically everything. But in this interview, basically, we, we touch on and we stick with trout and cod. So, a bit of a rundown of what this episode covers because it is quite long. So, I'm just going to run through what we talk about. So, we talk about everything I just mentioned above. Um, also, how fishing started for Lubin, uh, his journey so far, uh, what makes Lubin stand out from the crowd and the things that he does in fishing that is different. And there's a reason he's so good at what he does and, and you'll hear all about it in this episode. We talk about his travel around Australia with his wife, Casey, and living out of a van, which is something he him and her have both been doing for quite a while now and fishing a lot. So we touch on that. Um, we talk a bit about his competition fly fishing uh, and we talk a bit about his freelance riding as well. Then we get into some techniques and tips and fishing stories and, and starting with trout and his current trip to Tasmania. So I focus on his, his trip in Tassie at the moment and what he's been doing and the best techniques if you were to go to Tasmania and target trout on fly. And then Lubin gets into telling me a story about his PB Brown and the hunt for this fish over many, many days. This story had me on edge and it's just crazy the lengths this guy goes to to get the results. So that was a really cool story. And then as the podcast progresses, we get into pretty much my favorite part of the episode where Lubin talks about giant cod on the Murray River. And I know it's probably going to be your most favorite part of the episode as well. And we talk about all sorts of different things like his lure choice, his angling styles, what he looks for out in the water and, and what not to do. It's so important to do the right things, but it's also important to not do things that waste time. And, and Lubin talks about his processes and what he goes through. And you probably be quite surprised with what he does, but also quite surprised at how simple what he does is, but how hard it is for people to do. 
So we get right in, in depth on that. Um, he talks about how he fishes the water, the different retrieves. We talk about surface, subsurface, how many casts he places on one log, which is critical to his success. Uh, we even talk about the weather conditions and which are best for those big giant cod. We also talk about a few things about sounders. Now, the thing that Lubin has to talk about or to say about a sounder is crazy, and you'll really want to hear that. Even if you were just to listen to this whole podcast just for what he says about sounders, stay tuned to listen for that. And later on in the episode, he talks about his most memorable COD experience. Um, and then we also talk about the future ahead for Lubin and what's in store for his future. Now, this is a very big episode, and if there's only just some parts that you want to listen to or, or different things like I just touched on then, we actually have show notes on the Social Fishing website. If you jump on our website, just hit the button in the main menu, take you straight to the podcast. You can go to this episode with Lubin. You can listen to it there, but you can also see the show notes and the times in the show for different things. And we do this for every single episode. So if you go back through all the other 24 episodes, you can see basically show notes for each episode, which allow you to just basically move ahead to the bits that you want to listen to. So this is a cracker of an episode. Now, before we get in to the episode, I just want to talk about the complete guide lure fishing series. Now, if you've listened to the podcast, if you've seen the content we create, you may have already heard about the complete guide series. And if you've never heard about it before, I'm just going to give you a bit of a rundown of what it is. It's basically our signature tutorial series that we created to help you guys catch more fish. Now, in summary, what it is, it's a 26-hour tutorial series that you can stream online or you can also purchase on DVD. They're both formats are available and it's 26 hours of content, 26 hours of tutorials that teach you how to fish, gives you the answers that you basically don't find anywhere. Just for a rundown, I'll just give you an example of one of the series. One of the most popular is Murray Cod and Golden Perch in Rivers. So it talks about all about fishing for these natives in the rivers. Now it's an eight-part series and it's over 300 minutes long. So for example, the first part is the introduction. So in that part, we talk about the weather, um, water flows, how Murray Cod and Golden Perch behave in rivers and water temperature and all sorts of things like that, flows, color of water, things like that. It gives you an introduction to the species and how they behave in rivers. Part two is gear selection. We sit down and run through the gear that you need to get out there and catch fish, all from the line to the knots to the reels, the rods, uh, and even the extra things like your pliers, your nets, and your tackle backs and everything like that. We talk about the gear selection. Part three is lure selection, same deal, but all the different lures you can use, down to the hooks that you put on them, the colors, the styles, the weights, it's all in that. Part four is casting, that's where we explain how to cast, the techniques to use to cast, and what structure that you want to be casting at, and what parts and features of the structure. Part five is casting part two, it goes into more detail on demonstrations of casting, and also talks about retrieve patterns and retrieve speeds in that one there. Part six is casting from the bank, so it's everything you need to know if you are bank walking rather than being in a boat. Part seven is trolling and part eight is the bonus part, which has got heaps and heaps of action and plenty extra tips. That is just one of the series out of the eight that are in the complete guide. Now, the reason I'm explaining this to you is because knowledge is so important as you will learn in this episode with Lubin, this man has a wealth of knowledge and because of this, he catches fish and I mean monster fish and consistently as well and that's all because he knows what he's doing. He's spent time on the water and learned but he's also learned from other people because there are people who have done things before us 
that can share the knowledge and basically save us time. And that's what this Complete Guide series is for. The reason I created it is because I couldn't find this information when I was younger and I wish someone handed me this series. It would have saved me a lot of time and it would have given me a great understanding of fishing. So if you're keen on lure fishing for trout, cod, golden perch, check out the Complete Guide Lure Fishing series. Uh, Where you can see it is on the social fishing website and if you're new to the lure fishing game this series will be your shortcut to success it's a minimal investment that will give you so much in return so as i said it's on the social fishing website which is socialfishing.com.au and there's even heaps of video trailers there that you can check out on each series and see what's involved that's enough from me guys i want to really get into this episode started off because it is going to be an absolute cracker and i hope you get a lot out of this so without Without further ado, let's talk to the legend, the man himself, Lubin Pfeiffer. Welcome guys back to the episode. Now I am with a very, very special guest who is a well and truly more than accomplished angler. He's achieved more than many of us have. I'm with Lubin Pfeiffer, mate. Thank you very much for joining me. It's my pleasure, Reese. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, no, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to sit down and talk with anyone else. There's a lot of people I love talking to, but right in this moment, I'm so glad that I've got you on the end of the line. Um, mate, now, first of all, why fishing for you? Why, why the love for fishing? It's interesting because um, I've, I've just always loved um, the outdoors for some reason. So um, I was actually a musician through my teenage years. And, yeah, um, right. It was just something about fishing that got me in and, you know, sort of started going every weekend and stuff. Like we fished as kids. But, um, yeah, just once I got my car license and sort of had the freedom to go places and explore and it just really got me in. So, yeah, I Is- think it's a bit of everything. Is there one aspect that got you in or you think it's the whole journey of fishing? Like for uh, me, for me, it's like the, the unknown, but like what is in it for you? Well, it, initially it was um, the Murray River. So we lived uh, half an hour from the Murray, um, a really good section of the Murray. So, you know, we'd just go up there and it was always funny because it was always just the river, you know, it wasn't like the sea and clear and, yep. but, you know, as it turned out, like down the bottom end of the Murray, there's a pretty epic sort of place. So to sort of start exploring that and, you know, start fishing lures and trolling about the place and yeah, it was a, it was a good introduction that's for sure. Yeah, nice. I just want to go back to your music thing. What did you play? Uh, I played in a punk band. Um, I still kind of <laughs> do a bit. Yeah. So um, nice. I, I played bass guitar for many years and then um, guitar and now I play the drums. So Yeah, nice. So you reckon if you didn't fall in love with fishing, you might have ended up pursuing that a bit more maybe? Yeah, well, it's funny. You've got to have something else other than your, uh, like, you can get so tied up in fishing, I think. So yep. my, my release where I don't think about anything else is when I just go and play music with my few mates and, um, you know, that's I just don't think about anything else and don't get all uh, tied up in the politics, so to speak, of all the other stuff that goes on. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah. Nice. So back to, so we're talking about the Murray River. So you grew up, where did you grow up? And, uh, and you're saying you didn't fall into fishing straight away. It was more when you started to get your license. So did you, did you fish with your family much or is it something you fell into yourself? Well, it was mainly just, um, going on uh like holidays and stuff like my mum and dad fished and my nana was a really really keen fisher like she'd get pop up at four in the morning to go down um to the murray where we fished um just to bait fish for like callop or yellows off the bank yeah um so i think i got the bug from her but it wasn't until 
sort of I got my license that I could go whenever I wanted to. I did do, we've got like a really good ready stream um, near home, like a couple of minutes from home, um, which is in the Barossa Valley. Yeah. Um, that's where I grew up. I lived there for 30 odd years. Um, yep. So, you know, I'd ride my bike down there. But um, yeah, it was mainly once I started going down the Murray that everything sort of really kicked off for me with my fishing. Yeah, right. So it's when you got once you got your license and you had that ability to travel a bit and and do it on your own, well, just with mates down. and that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, go out for the weekend and you know stuff around and go cast lures and troll lures about the place and um, bait fish for yellows and stuff. So yeah, but, nice. Yeah. So do you reckon? Just a quick question. I just had a thought. Do you reckon that? I'm just thinking about sort of the era that you grew up in back, say, when you were 17, 18. Do you reckon there's a lot more information around now around fishing compared to when you were learning? I just, I'm curious to know how you went about learning. Was it like 95% figure it out yourself or, or was there a portion of learning from others? Uh, well, no, nah, not really because no one down our way fished with lures. Like, You'd have the old dudes that would be trolling up and down with their petrels, um, but it was really in the infancy. Like, I started cod fishing in about 2000, I think. Yeah. Um, so, when we first started lure fishing for um, cods, and, you know, it's before Facebook and all of that stuff. Like, I didn't have a phone till I was oh, maybe 19 or 20 or something. So, yeah, um, yeah you'd read freshwater fishing. Um, but no, nah, there wasn't a lot of information out there. It was um, yeah, it was very very different. We did we did travel into state a little bit, which I learned like stuff from. You know, go to the tackle shops there because they had lots of lures and all that sort of stuff. But nah, like SA was a very uh, they always say it's half an hour and twenty years behind, and I think fishing was very much like that, particularly freshwater fishing, which I was right into. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. sort of sort of. So you reckon sort of more central new central southern new south wales it was probably a little bit easier to find what you needed because it was just more smack bang in the middle of native country whereas where you were you were right on the edge yeah for sure and no one like i i fished for the first maybe five years for cod and you wouldn't see anyone else out chasing cod apart from like there there'd be particular cliffs where there'd be a bunch of locals trolling up and down with their petrels but like yep. no one no one would be casting snags or anything like that like it, you just didn't see it around the place no one had electric motors like it was you know it yeah. was a very rare time back in the day yeah it's changed so much now oh, so yeah. much so, so do you remember the first time you started chasing them? Was did you just go straight into casting, or did you bait fish for them first, or did you copy the old dudes with the petrol motors and troll? Yeah, trolling was the go. Like I've never ever bait fished for cod in my life, um, and yeah, we just troll up and down particular stretches, like really obvious deep sections of cliffs along um, particular banks, sort of on the lower end of the Murray, and that's just because everyone else, that's you know, that's what you did. You just trolled up and down with your um your stump jumpers and your orgy plows and the old poltergeist and that was yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so why did you make that transition into casting? When you said there was no one else casting, they were all trolling. When you did make that transition, why? Was it based on information you'd read, possibly? Uh, it was when, like, we used to go up to, like, Bow Reynolds and stuff every now and again and go casting up there because the water's not that big to sort of troll right. it. Um, yep. You know, and then we sort of come back and started casting stump dumpers at snags and um, one thing led to another. And, you know, I haven't trolled in the last maybe four years, I don't think, four or five years. I just refuse to troll now. 
Not because it's not a good technique, it's because of the style of fishing. It's just so boring. Isn't it? Uh, it's terrible. But, you know, yeah. it's where everyone starts off and it's a great way of catching big fish. But, you know, I, I just got to cast. I got to be doing something. Yeah. Like, particularly long hours between bites, you know. I'd rather be sort of, yeah, entertaining myself casting lures around than um, just sitting there holding the rod. Totally agree with you. Totally yeah. agree. So then where did it go for there in terms of you and fishing? So you've, you know, you've started catching fish around that age of 20. Did, when did you write your, because you're, you're massive into your freelance writing. Yep. When did you first get into that? Um, well, it was actually uh, Rod McKenzie got me into my writing. So um, Jim Han, uh, Jim Hanwell? No, yep. not Jim was he no. the old editor of Fresh I think Water? he was. I think he was, yeah. Yeah. So um, he asked Rod what I was up to, and I actually did my first article written on a piece of paper that Rod's wife typed up for me. Um, no way. And then it got published in, uh, I think, one of the local SA mags here, and that's how it all sort of kicked off for me. So. What age was that? Uh, maybe 21 or something, 20. Yeah, 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 nice, yeah. and and it just went from there. So, how did you end up? Was Rod McKenzie had started his uh, not his fame, but with his following by then, and, and creating his content by then when you met him, or did you meet him before that? Uh, no, he was um like he had written for Freshwater for many many okay. years, and right. I I was doing stuff um like just uh, sending Glenn from um, Bassman uh, lots lots of pics of big fish and all that sort of stuff, and I just remember Glenn rang one day and said, you know, Rod is looking for someone to fish with down the lower end, and um would you be keen? And I just thought it would be a really good good opportunity to fish with someone that was very knowledgeable. So yeah, that's how we sort of um, came to fish together. Yeah, right, okay. So mm. you knew you knew of him and read his stuff oh, before yeah. you fished with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah nice. And did yeah. you learn a lot from, from him? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um and I think it was a very interesting time. Um, you know, the Murray was in drought and all that sort of stuff. So between the two of us we you know, we had a really good time and caught lots of big fish and worked worked stuff out. I think we were very good at bouncing ideas off of each other. I always remember um Rod never liked stump jumpers, um, but he was into all the other lures that we hadn't seen before, but we were sort of right into casting our stump jumpers, which are still a really effective lure to chuck at a snag. So We obviously convinced him to use them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. Like, I always used to, I never ever saw anyone do it, but like uh, colouring my bibs in with the texture and all this sort of stuff. So, um, you know, but he brought down um, spinner baits and all that sort of stuff that um, you could cast because I used to use heavy ones to troll. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd caught most of my f big fish on spinnerbaits trolling them. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I got my first one casting a spinnerbait with um, with Rod, yeah. Yeah, nice. So, yeah. onto the, the DVDs that he created, was that a co thing? Like, did you both come up with the idea? With it? Was that after you started fishing with him or did he come up with the idea and invite you to be a part of the video? Uh, we'd been fishing together for a fair while and then... Um, yeah, the fishing was so good that I think it was his idea to film it. So, um, yep. yeah, I, I was keen on sort of, yeah, doing all that content creating stuff. So, um, yeah, just went along with it. And it was good fun putting those together over the oh, few awesome years fun. you did? Yeah, yeah. Like, I remember, you know, you're getting oh, like 20, I reckon one week we filmed got 28 fish over a metre. Jeez. Um, so, yeah, it was like it was a really special time, you know. That's crazy. Um, yeah. And you'd, yeah, regularly catch like 
fish of 30, 40 kilos um, on the cast. It was just a very special time in my life, for sure. Yeah, oh, yeah. I bet. And when mm. you went out and filmed them, was it like a weekend you'd go on your weekends? I don't know. Were you working at that stage or did you just I go out working. for the whole week? Oh, I was very lucky um, because I've uh, worked with my dad as an electrician for uh, 18 years up until like a couple of years ago. Um, yep. So, yeah, dad, mum and dad were very forgiving at giving me um, time off to sort of make the most of an opportunity like that. So we'd take, yeah. you know, a week or two weeks off um, and then go and film some stuff and, um, yeah. Geez, that'd be fun when you just got like days and days and days just to be on the water and just fish. Yeah, just yeah, catch big cods day after day. It was awesome. That's the case. Yeah, so, yeah. And so why did you continue to keep riding? Obviously, the passion's there for fishing and you just love helping other people and writing about what you do. Uh, well, but it's probably not going to go down that well, but I like the money. Yeah. <laughs> you no, know, we all, like, we, yeah. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. So it funds my, like, it pays for fuel and it pays for rego and, um, yeah, it allows me to get gear and, um, I, I really enjoy taking, as much as I like catching a good fish, I really enjoy taking a good photo of it too. Like, I'd yep. rather catch, you know, three or four good ones and get beautiful photos than go and catch 10 and get no photos. So, um... Yeah, I think, and that just that part of sharing the photos, you know, getting a cover or something like that's an achievement in itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. I totally understand. And, and I get where you're coming from because by sharing what you're doing, it allows you to do it more and then because you get the money to do it, you can keep doing it and you can keep sharing with people. So, yeah. it's a win-win for everyone, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. It's like like coming from a trade background, like it, you, you always see the older tradies that are really good at their trade, but they don't share anything and it's like, I don't know, maybe you should write a book or something and just give some of your secrets away because you're just going to take them to the grave with you. So, yeah, I think, it's, yeah. It's interesting, hey, it's, it's, that's the way basically, not just in fishing, but the whole our whole human race evolves is by sharing what we've learned, passing it down mm. and helping people do things quicker so then it's more efficient. So obviously that's what we do with fishing and it's funny how some people hold things so close to themselves. I don't think it's a, it might be a selfishness thing but also they might have worked hard to get to it but I feel like there's more, you get more out of sharing it but everyone's different I guess. Yeah and I, I do, I've been competition fly fishing for um, 15 years now or something and um, it actually betters you as an angler to give away some of your secrets because then you have to come up with new ways to catch fish and it keeps you sort of um, not ahead of the pack but you know you always have to be thinking outside um, the box yeah yeah so and the other thing I was going to say too I think it actually improves your fishing by writing it down as well like if, if you've got a specific technique or a leader set up or something like that if you're continually writing that down like when you're out on the water you're thinking about what you've written and it sort of keeps in your head and I you know I think that actually helps yeah, I know what you mean. So it's kind of like you have an idea or you do something, but by writing it, it allows you to sort of explore it more because you're like, all right, how do I actually do this? And it gives you yeah. more time to think about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the process and yeah, why it is the way that it is and all that sort of stuff. So you're saying that writing makes you a better angler? I would say so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah nice. So... Um, I want to touch on your trout. How did you get into fly fishing for trout? Because it's, it's not an easy game um, as much and I learnt quite a bit from a, a one person who sort of shows it to you and then once you sort of get it, it makes sense. But did someone show you how to fly fish? 
Um, it was very interesting. I fished, the, I don't know whether you've heard of the Broughton River in South Australia. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's full of cods and um, brown and rainbow trout and a whole horde of other things because people put them in there. But um, uh, a very dear old friend of mine who since passed away, he um, owned a property up there that I fished um, very often. And one afternoon he said, you know, the, the fly club, and I'd just been a cod fisher up to that point, um, and he said the fly club down the road who owns these um, railway cottages um, at Yakas, the town, they said they're holding this come and try day. Yeah. Um, and uh, he said you should go and you should go and have a look. So a friend and I went down there, and um, there was a guy called John Rumpf, who's a very uh, old, famous fly caster, and a few other people there. And um, yeah, like after the day, I learned about entomology. I learned about casting. I learned about all this stuff that made so much sense when you're on the river, like the way the um, why the way things are. And then uh, they took us out on the river, showed us a bit of like how you cast and stuff on the water. And um, I was really inspired. Yep. And um, yeah, that that week, uh, a guy that lives in the town that I lived in, in the Barossa, um, rang me and said, oh, you're going to come and um, do uh, the fly comp next weekend. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I, I've only just started fly fishing. I don't have any gear or anything. And he said, look, like, come up. I've got a rod. He gave me some flies, a pair of these old waders. Um, and uh, he said, come up and do the fly comp next weekend. So I went up there and I didn't know what I was doing. But within the first, I think it was 20 minutes or half an hour of the first session, I caught a 62 centimeter rainbow. Far out. Um, that was my first fish on fly. And like ever since then, I've just been ruined. Like it's just, it's always <laughs> stuck with me. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. So, mm. you just how what age was that? Uh, I would have been eighteen, maybe. Yeah. Oh, okay, so it's when yeah. that sort of that cod you were developing your cod skills as well. So it was way back. So you've been yeah, fishing yeah. for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. And then from there, do you say you reckon with with fly fishing with trout? Because it's I've figured out too. It's a lot about understanding how that whole ecosystem works. Um, do you did you learn a lot from spending time on the water and testing different things? Uh, competition fly fishing excels your learning rate. So like I reckon five years of fishing by yourself, you can gain that knowledge in maybe two competitions. Yeah. Um, so uh, because you're in a group of anglers that are very, very good um, and particularly like a lake competition, you may you might go out in a lake all by yourself, have no idea what you're doing, whereas – uh, with these, uh, with the Fly Fish Australia comps, you know, you get put in a boat with four different anglers over the weekend. Some of them might have been overseas representing Australia, and you get to see all the techniques, the way that they fish, the flies they use. Um, so your your learning just excels. So right. um, yeah, and competition's quite different because you you very much do um, work off the hatch and imitating things and all that sort of stuff. But it's very it's just orientated on catching fish with the fly like it's you know all the different techniques so ripping woolly buggers on a sinking line fishing dries nymphing there's just a multitude of techniques that you use in a competition to actually catch fish yeah so it's um so in those comps do you use the technique that works best to get you the most fish is that how they work yeah yeah, yeah right, sure. okay. Yeah, and yeah. when you're saying you're fishing with a bunch of other blokes, do you just watch them and they're not sharing or are they quite open into you guys talk about fishing while you're out there on the day or it's more of just a visual thing that you're watching them? 
it depends on your skill level. So when you're very early on um, and you're a novice, people are very happy to share things. And then when you start being competitive, um, people get a little bit cagey and they don't want to share as much. So um, <laughs> you get to a certain level. But, you know, if you go away with a team, which I've been lucky enough to do quite a few times, um, you are all there, like the six or seven of you, to work out a particular type of water and everything's on the table. So you learn like heaps um, from really, really good anglers during those times. So yeah. um, it does vary, you know. And spending that time with that many like-minded people is going to excel your knowledge just immensely, isn't it? Like it's like having a barbecue with five cod fishos, but it's like just you're full-on talking about it the whole time, yeah, right yeah. in depth so that you guys can get the result pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, and I get a lot out of uh, watching people fish. Um, so, you know, when they're actually out there competitively fishing to try and win a competition, you know, they're doing everything uh, they need to do well. So you pick up a lot of things as to how they do it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I totally get it. Mm. Okay, so just moving on, uh, tell me about Big Angry Fish. How did it start and, and how, how, did, how did that all go? Um, so, Milan. Um, Loves big freshwater fish. So a friend, dear friend of mine, Scotty Gray, um, ha, has been friends with Milan for quite a number of years. And, um, yeah, Milan wanted to catch a big cod. Um, so he said, I know a guy that could do that for you. Um, so, yeah, one thing led to another and we ended up cod fishing for a number of years together. Yeah. And I'd, be, I'd been doing uh, promotional stuff for Rapala Australia. Yep. Um, and Milan wanted to buy my hat spot um, because he saw great value in it, which caused a fair old stir in everything. Um, what did he want to buy? I missed that. My hat, my hat spot. Yeah, right. So like the name on my hat. So yeah. you know, I'll give you X amount to wear a hat because I had I hadn't actually had a contract with Rapala. Um, yeah. So you know, he put a cat in the, whatever they call it, cat in the pigeon's cage, and um, yeah, wanted to buy my hat spot. And anyway, from there, um, you know, the opportunity came up to start doing stuff with them, um, and it ended up leading to being like a co-host on the show, so... Yeah, nice. Um, yeah, so... Uh, and then where yeah. did that go? So did you do trips overseas over to them as well, or did he mainly come here and do quite a few episodes? No, mainly um, mainly over there. So we did uh, a COD episode. We tried to film like a snapper one and stuff, but it didn't really happen. Um, and we did a Nomad one, but there was audio issues, which is a real, real um, yeah, Dis- sad thing. Yeah. Um, and But anyway, uh, because it's a Kiwi-based show, um, they really... Like they really love snapper and kingies as much as you see the bad comments on Facebook about too many snapper and kingies. Like um, New Zealanders cannot get enough of like particularly bait caught snappers. So yeah, um, it was better for me to go over there and film over there. So I would go over like last year I was over there for a couple of months and I think uh, six weeks the year before just um you know uh, filming and fishing over in New Zealand. Yeah, no. So were they like six weeks and two months straight, and just getting yep. as many episodes done as you could, and then you come back home. Yep. Yep. Yeah, nice. And and good fun. Thoroughly oh, enjoyed. It's amazing. The, yeah, 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 yeah. Really good. You know, like uh, like last season, um, which we filmed in uh, March, April, like catching a tailing snapper on like with bare feet um, on a six weight fly rod. Um, That's you know, crazy. It's just amazing. Yeah. So. I've been lucky enough to see and, you know, experience really, really cool things that, yeah, just wouldn't have had the opportunity to do it otherwise. 
And how many episodes did you film with them? Uh, I think I did six or seven this year out of the 13. Yeah, yeah, so uh, quite a few. Yeah, yeah, quite a few. So, And it was it was really cool this year. Um, well, last season, they blended, like I would be out on the Trout River and the guys would be out in the boat, So, and they'd chop, chop between like each location. So it's sort of, because an hour episode, hour-long episode, is quite a long like time mm. for a fishing episode. So yeah. it just sort of broke, broke it up and kept it a bit fresh. Yeah, yeah, for mm. sure. Oh, nice. Now, moving on, I just want to talk about your last, I think it's a couple of years, traveling in the van. Yep. How did that come about? And tell us all about it. Um, well, that was sort of spawned from uh, the Big Angry Fish opportunity because I, yeah, basically got paid to be a fisher fisher person. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my wife and I made the decision. She actually really wanted to travel to... Um, Tassie, so that was always on the list. But um, you know, being being funded gave us the opportunity to buy a van and do it up, and then um, you know hit the road and go and experience all the cool stuff that we'd wanted to do. And um, yeah, my wife and I are really into fly fishing for trout, so Tassie was big on the list. And um, yeah, yeah. So uh, and we've actually got lots of really really dear friends down in Tassie too, so it makes it quite easy for us to. Um, you know, live the life we're living as well. So, um, Tassie's, yeah, it's been a really, really cool place. Um, but we've gone, we've done like the snowy mountains and we haven't done anything up north, but, you know, we've gone and chased kings in South Australia. We've gone, I've spent heaps of time up the Murray last year, like it was ridiculous. Yeah. And then, um, <laughs> yeah. And done like Victoria and, um, yeah, just all over the place. So it's been, yeah, just living the dream basically. How long you been in the van for? When did you take off? Since la- October, year before last. October, the year before last. So you, what? You, this October will be two years. Yep. Coming. So what's the plan? Is that at the minute there's no plan or it's just in the uh, van and fish? There's a bit of a plan, um, but I've just got, yeah, I've got a got something brewing but i'm not sure whether it's going to work um so i don't want to let the cat out of the bag um yeah, so well, we'll stay tuned for it we'll stay tuned. <laughs> i've got um i know i've got a big winter of um casting uh, lures up the murray coming up so that's locked in um and my wife and i are um selected to f- represent australia again uh, at the commonwealth over in new zealand in march so we're here in to Tassie uh, till the end of Feb, and then we're home back home in SA for a week, and then we fly to New Zealand for a month. So right, okay. So there's that yeah. much planned so far. Yeah, yeah, and then get home, and I've got from May till uh, mid sept Well, no, sorry, end of um, August to cast lures up the river. So Jeez. I reckon something's going to go down during that time. Oh, I reckon you want to hope yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> you want to hope so. But for anyone who's thinking of possibly getting, even if it's not for as long as you've gone for, but even if they're thinking of getting a van and going for six months, do you recommend it for a keen fisher to just go oh. explore? Do you recommend what you've done? It's amazing. It really is. Like uh, time slows down, um, and what we've found is that you can. You actually, it's a weird thing to say, but you actually save money in a sense um, because you you shop smart. Um, like if you go and park somewhere, you're there for the whole week. You're not driving to and from places the whole time, and you know you're not paying for accommodation. So, like we haven't we haven't stayed in a caravan park for. 
I couldn't tell you how long. Like we've got this really good catalogue of free camps and and there's an amazing app called WikiCamps so you know where all the good places are and like uh, and with our van um, it's fully uh, self apart from a loo um, but you can find lots of those. Uh, we've got yep. all the power we need, the fridge, um, you know, running water. We've got a um, instant gas hot water shower. So the shower is like amazing. So we're totally self-sufficient. So we're not paying, you know, it's like 30 or 40 bucks to pay for a caravan park site. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah like, and then you, you times that by 10 days and that's like 400 bucks in the first 10 days just on having the ability to park somewhere or set up your tent or something. So, mm. you know, a van's an actual like economical way to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah, and we're very smart shoppers. Like we shopped the other day, we did seven uh, dinners, uh, lunch, and we had breakfast organised for the two of us. It was eighty, eighty-one dollars sixty or something. Geez, that's good. Yeah, so we've got all these little knick-knacky things, you know, because because you've got the time to actually shop. Like I, I would work as an electrician. You've had a long day. You go in the supermarket and you look like whatever's easy. I'm just going to grab it and go and you know you might spend 30 bucks on one dinner like just to Mm. you know get home so you can sit out uh, sit down and chill out whereas um in the van you've got a little bit more time and you can make a bit more sort of clued up decisions on what to buy and when to buy it and all that sort of stuff yeah nice it's it's so good and then the whole experience of visiting the places and do do you spend a whole heap of time at each spot and do you fish every day minus the terrible weather days yep I even fish the terrible weather days. I'm I'm hopeless. <laughs> I just fish all the time. So this trip, um, like and last trip too, we've just been ticking off new locations. So um, today, well, we did visit like a part of it last year, but we did the Hellier River the day before. We just saw a cool little stream as we drove over it, which was the Way River. So we fished that. Uh, we fished the Vale River, um, and that's just in the last two days. Uh, we're just yeah. doing different locations. Like this year, I think, I'm not sure how many, might be 15 or 16 new locations that we fished over here. That's insane. Yeah. That's so, so good. Yeah. Oh, it'd be good. It'd be good. And and it's, and it's I'm glad, I reckon you'd be glad you made the plunge and just thought, let's give this a crack because... Yeah. You've... You're not like, um, we're not making any money, um, but we, we make enough to get by, um, which is more than you need, like that we we find at this time in our lives. Like I've sort of because we don't have room to keep things in the van. Like I don't I don't have any interest in material things anymore. You know, yeah. As long as I've got my fishing gear and I've got enough tippet and hooks and stuff to tie flies and whatever it might be, and I've got more cod lures than you could poke a big long stick at. So mm. you know, winter time I just box everything up and then just park the van. And the van's actually set up so I can charge my electric motor battery. So yeah, um, can be totally self sufficient on the river um, for ages like it's yeah it's really good well it's memories and life isn't it it's, it's not basically giving up your, your life to surrender to make money in something you don't enjoy doing you're basically making memories and in living life to basically as full as you can yep yeah I remember always remember Milan saying that um, you work hard so that you can go spend money at the supermarket so that you can have dinner to get up and do it all again the next day exactly um, yeah it's kind of a bit of truth in that I think yeah, definitely. And another question I just have for you there is, do you t- have you taken all your cod lures with you to Tassie just because of the trip down and back? So can you store all your cod lures and gear and your fly stuff in the van? Uh, we do. Um, I don't have any because I don't cod fish during summer. Right. So I only cod fish from like Easter 
uh, till the end of the season. So um, I've got saltwater stuff for like chasing brims and squids and all that sort of stuff. And then we've just got all the fly stuff and, you know, we've got this epic fly tying kit and, um, yeah, all the stuff to fish in the boat and in the um, uh, on the rivers and stuff. So depends on where we're going, like we take it in and out. But we've got like heaps and heaps of storage in the van, which is really important when we did the build. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, fair so... So, on your trip to Tassie, in terms of actually chasing the trout, um, I know there's probably a stack of different techniques and that you could use, but if someone was doing a trip to Tassie, are there any spots that you would recommend or any specific fly fishing techniques you would recommend to anglers? It would have to be dry fly down in Tassie, um, just because for some reason down here in Tassie, they're always looking up and yeah, I never get sick of watching a brown trout just rise up and suck down a dry fly, so... I think you always want to have your dries with you. Um, if you're going to do one technique, that would be it. But um, yeah. like Euronymphing is really, really good in some rivers. Um, and then, you know, pulling woolly buggers on the lakes is very good as well. So like uh, fishing a team of woolly buggers on a sinking line. Yeah. Um, is that what you've been doing in the lakes that you have been fishing? Uh, like- a bit of both. You do this. You can also nymph as well, which is using like a floating line with a, like a nine-foot straight leader and then three nymphs um, on the end of it of various types. So if there's a hatch on, then it's really good to nymph, whereas if the weather's terrible, um, there's lots of waves and rain, then then you'd be pulling woolly buggers. So, yeah, right. Um, yeah, I always take a selection of stuff. Like I'll have stuff ready for plonking, which is fishing like an indicator with a couple of nymphs underneath. If this is a, if I'm fishing a lake, um, I'll have yep. dries and then nymphing stuff and then also stuff for pulling streamers like woolly buggers. So the nymphing stuff in the lakes, are you? How, how do you do that? Once the just, I just can't get my head around it. Do you do? You, is does the fly basically just slowly move as if the nymph's coming up off the bottom? How how do you do that technique? It's just sitting like just under the surface most okay. of the time. So right. um, yeah, so the fish are up looking looking for like a, mainly when a mayfly hatches on. Yeah, okay, um, emerging. Yeah, yep. so they're just under the surface or they're eating uh, stuff off the surface. Um, but you just, when you do like a figure of eight um, retrieve and you just keep up with the pace of the boat. So basically your flies are just sitting there, the browns are cruising around and then they, they find them. like that. They're really particular here um, that they don't like the fly moved very much right? Um, because the nymphs don't move fast at all. So it's a real skill in the technique to be able to get those flies just to like almost be static as the, um, the boat's drifting along. How do you keep them just under the surface? Do you use an indicator to keep them up or they just seem they to just sit? They just sit under. So they're unweighted nymphs. Um, you might use a bead head on the point sometimes, but um, they're unweighted nymphs and they just they just slowly sink. Like They might be 100 or 200 mil under the surface. Yep. Um, and that's where the fish are looking. You know, They're looking up, so they'll see them um, when they're just under the surface like that. And you cast, I kind of figured you're casting in front of where the boat's drifting? Uh, you sort of fan your cast, so you do some out to the to the side, some out the front, and then some in between those two casts too. So, um, and you know, if you see a fish rise, then you try and lead it one way or the other, depending on which way the fish is cruising. Yeah, right. And do yeah. you drift with the breeze? Is that how it works? Yeah. You just fully yeah, under just a, natural drift. Well, under a drogue, so yep. you have a drogue off the um, right hand side of the boat usually, um, yep. and then that just slows it to a perfect fishing speed. So. Um, 
you know, if it's still, you won't have the drogue out, you can just drift with a light breeze. But, um, yeah, if there's any sort of breeze at all, just chuck the drogue out and that puts the boat at a perfect fishing speed. And it also makes the boat drift parallel as well. So, you know, when you're fishing two, you can um, both get really good fishing, fishing water in front of you. Yeah, okay. And then yeah. if you're casting out out to the sides right and yep. you basically nymph isn't moving and as you sort of are drifting forward you still would be coming in a bit so you'd pick up your slack a little bit is there a point where you kind of started to drift and then you're starting to pull tight on it so then you pick it up and cast it again so you're always yeah. sort of casting at least diagonally forward you're not casting straight out to the side are you because then you'd no. start dragging well it's, it's interesting like i cannot get out of comp techniques so in a comp um you're allowed 90 a 90 degree section off the say if the boat's drifting um or you're fishing out the side of the boat with the like the drogue on the right hand side you're fishing on the left um and then the boat split down the middle yep. um you've got like a 90 degree chunk off to the side and the person in the front's got a 90 degree chunk off to the side yeah so i'll never really cast like dead on 90 degrees off to the side because then my my flies will end up in like illegal water. So I'm always sort of maybe a 45 degree cast off the side. So even yep. though the boat's drifting, you've still got enough time to, um, you know, retrieve those flies before the line gets past your motor. Yeah, okay. And yeah. then it's really interesting to me, with that technique, are you just casting, if you've got no signs of fish, obviously if you see a fish, you, you sort of have an idea of where you're going to put it. Are, yeah. you, are you just blind casting, letting it sit there? Because you said it doesn't move and then pick it up again and cast it again. It just seems to me, it, from thinking from a lure fishing point of view, you're covering water, whereas this doesn't seem like you'd be covering as much. Uh, it's it's keeping up with the drift of the boat. Sometimes you might um, speed up your retrieve a little bit and move the nymphs and see if they want that. But um, it's just about like the boat will be drifting a nice steady pace. You're casting out, say, like oh, maybe 30 feet. Yeah. Um, and as the boat's drifting, you're just figure eighting, keeping up with it. And then um, when it gets, say, 10 feet from the boat, you just hang the flies as you pull each one out of the water and then mm -hmm. recast and do the same thing again. Yeah, okay, right. Mm. right. Yeah, so, so, in terms of for someone going down there and chasing fish, and we talk, go back to the streams and the rivers, that dries would be the, go, uh, the way to go, as you said. Yep. Would you be using, are there any particular patterns? Uh, anything small. Like, there are some times when they'll eat big stuff, but any sort of little small um, mayfly or caddis imitations are very, very good. So, you know, I'm talking 16 to wow, uh, that's small. 20s. Yeah, that's and small. lots of 20s is um, pretty the norm down here. So there's not – when you go on the rivers, like it's different to the lakes. The lakes have got quite big mayflies, but when you go down on the rivers, like the mayflies are very small. So, um, yeah, there's, there's people that will come down and they'll catch a few fish using bigger dries, but it's only when you start using those really small ones that the fish come out. Yeah. Um, and you've got to have a drag-free drift. So, like I, I use a 20-foot leader. Um, with a long um, section of uh, quite thin line, so like a, it's a leader that I make up um, that's not a, a store-bought leader, um, and it doesn't lay out properly. So when you've got the flow of the river, the fly is actually drifting very, very naturally with the current rather than a store-bought leader, which lays out beautifully, but as soon as it lays out, it starts dragging because the current grabs it. Yep. So, um, yeah, it's very important for small flies, like blacks and browns um, or greys. is Like a grey fly is very good, like an Adams yep. um, or a clinkhammer is very good. Um, and then just make sure that that fly is drifting drag free like whenever you're on the river 
Yeah, okay. So that that's because the longer, thinner leader that you've got basically cuts through the water current rather than getting pushed along with it. Yep. 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 Yeah, yeah. so enough. thinner your line you can get away with. And I don't know, I don't talk in pounds, I talk in um, diameters. So for my dry fly tippet, I'll use like 0.10, which is maybe one and a half pound or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, fair enough. Um, can you tell me about that PB? I don't, was it your PB trout that you caught in Tassie? Oh, yeah. Not that, yep. Can you tell me about that? Because that is a monster <laughs> of a fish. That is huge. Uh, it was funny because I'd heard about these big bangers in the Taina River. Um, and yeah, that was like a two, two trip process over, I don't know, maybe three weeks or something. And, um, yeah, there's a particular stretch like down the lower end where you can go and walk around and look for these fish. And, um, I went down there, did a whole day, didn't see a single one. And then I went down the next day, walked around the whole day, didn't see anything. Um, and then as I was coming back up the river, um, I was standing on this one log, um, and I heard this big explosion at the bottom of this um, pool, and yeah. uh, this massive brown just come charging up to the um, top of the run, like right in front of me. Yeah. And I always remember like chucking this unweighted claret nymph um, out at him, um, or her actually it was, and uh, it just sort of turned on its side, um, and its mouth moved. I was like, that that's got it. And um, I hit this <laughs> fish, and it would have been. It was as big as the one that I took the photo of, um, and it did. The fly line did this massive rooster tail as this fish tore down the pool, and it exploded out of the water and did like this meter high jump out of the river. No um, way! Yeah, and I was like, "Whoa!" And then um, it did the same thing, like big rooster tail of the fly line up to the head of the pool, jumped up, and um, dusted me in the log. No. And way. I was like, "Ah!" Oh. And then um, that happened four times that afternoon. Really? Four different fish, yeah. And big, then four big fish? <laughs> all big, like massive ones. Um, and then I reckon I went down there like four times and didn't get any. Like, um, And then I went back one afternoon, I got one about 10 pound, which is really good. Um, but it still wasn't like, there's a distinct difference between, and 10 pound is like a, a, just such a trophy, but like a 10 pounder and those other ones, you know, they get up to like 20 pound down there. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I went back, this was like a week later or something like that. And, um, uh, the first day I went down there, there was like this giant, beautiful one, um, doing laps in this one particular pool. And, um, every time I chucked a fly out, it had refused and it had refused. And I remember just putting on this little, it might've been like a size 16, um, pheasant tail, uh, with a silver bead and yeah. I chucked it down as he did his beat and um, it just moved over a meter and ate it and um, yeah. I was like, ah, oh. and so I'm into this fish and I don't know how long I had it for um, and it's doing laps around the pool and and eventually I was like going to get my net ready and I was like, yep, I'm going to get this fish, going to get it and um, I got in the water and as I got in the water, it literally like bored at a million miles an hour up through the run of the pool, up through another pool and up a run into the next pool. Um, <laughs> so I'm like full sprinting as fast as I could up there. And then it got me in this big pile of trees. Um, and uh, I was tangled in all my fly line and like I was digging around the um, tree trying to get it out and it was gone. Like, And I was just there tangled all in the fly uh, line. Yeah. And I just wanted to cr like fall in the river and cry. I was so, yeah. so upset. 
And, uh, yeah, so I didn't get that one. And then um, <laughs> I, I went down the next day and there was a um, there was a, a big banger in this one particular pool of fish that um, you saw the photo of. And yeah. um, I don't know how long I worked on that fish. Like, it was such a long time and it was like last fly change. I might have worked on it for two hours chucking Holy different flies at it. two yeah. hours? Yeah. Um, and then... Yeah, I was like, this is it. Like, if it doesn't eat this, it just doesn't want to eat. And, um, yeah, it chucked out, and the line went tight, and the fish moved, and I was like, I've got it. <laughs> and um, so, same thing, fought around the pool for ages. And um, just as I went to net it, this guy um, appeared randomly from You're the trees. You're joking. Yeah. And he's like, oh, mate, how you going? He goes, um, you got one. And I just distinctly remember him sort of um, leaning over like the bank, looking down in the river. And he goes, you've effing got one, like at the top <laughs> of his voice. Yeah. And um, I fell in as I lifted the net up, got the fish, and um, he took that beautiful photo for me. That is so uh, good. So random. Yeah. Um, so I had seen Casey? anyone down there. Uh, she was in the van probably knitting or tying flies or something. She didn't like that style of fishing because it drives you mad. Yeah. And yeah. then so what happens <laughs> if you did catch one? Who was going to take a photo for you? you uh, I carry a big dry, uh, tripod on my back, which is just, it, it is a pain to, I'm pretty good at taking a selfie. Like you'd be surprised. Um, I've got a number of my covers and like a lot of my magazine article photos are all taken by me. Yeah, I'm really good at setting up for a selfie and using like a time lapse timer and all this sort of stuff. Um, yeah, with my good camera. But yeah. anyway, it, it still wouldn't me. have been just as yeah. It wouldn't, nah, like, it was it wouldn't so have much been. easier. That's yeah. crazy. So, so yeah, so he took this beautiful. Like, I said to him, "Oh man, do you mind taking a photo?" And he's like, "Nah." So, and um, he took a few, and he's like, um, I, "I said, oh, can can I have a look?" And um, he showed me the thing. I said, "Ah, oh, like, can we just, you know, fill the frame a bit more? You need to sort of be yep. on this angle because I said this is really special. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry to be a pain, but can we just take a few more? I yeah. know how you feel. Yeah. I've had that same thing. You're like, oh, <laughs> that's yeah, because he's probably he probably never used the camera like that before. Nah, so um. And he was really good, and then he um, he goes to me, oh, mate, you're going to, you know, keep it? And I said to him, like, it was funny because at the top of the pool there was this beautiful little offshoot um, crevice thing where it had the current running in. It was this big old brown was just wedged in there while we were taking photos. So yeah. the water going through its gills. And I said, no. Nah. I said, I'm going to let someone else catch it. So I just turned it around and it swam back down into the pool, and that was it. Yeah, nice. Mm. So how big yeah. was it? Uh, I don't know, like maybe 16 or 17 pound or something. That I, is um, crazy. Yeah, it was like the biggest, most like, yeah, unreal thing I've ever seen. I've got a photo. I should put it up. Um, you get these really, we, we use these big um, competition fly fishing nets, like these Hannock nets, which are yep. like a pretty big landing net. And this thing just sitting on the top of it, like it more than fills it. It's ridiculous yeah. how big it is. Yeah, I was just, I was in awe that, you know, they, because people don't think the brand, like the browns get big down here, but there's lots of places where you get those really big ones. Mm. Yeah, and do, they don't get that big on mainland Australia, do they? Mm. You get some big ones in Yukonbeen. Right, but that'd like be during, yeah. yeah, but that's yeah, probably there's yeah, that's probably one of the only places. Yeah, yeah, right. Mm, but yeah. so <laughs> that is insane. It would have been <laughs> a crazy experience. And it was. That, that's your PB, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so good. Yeah, that's such My, a big brownie. Oh, it was incredible. Yeah, and What's such big the, teeth on it, and yeah, it was insane. What was the leader and the tippet that you needed to fool that fish and then be able to land it? Well, yeah, I, I stuffed up the first few times because I was fishing light tippet um, 
and like 0.12, which to anyone that competition fly fishers will think that that's stupid chucking that tippet at those fish, but you get more eats when you fish light tippets. So, yeah, but then you have um, the experience you had, which was yeah. all the bust-offs. <laughs> so, um, and then I upped myself to 0.16, which I think is about six pound. Um, yep. But before that fish had eaten, um, I went to re-rig and I'd run out of that tippet. Um, and I was like, ah, oh. so I chucked on 0.20, which I think is eight pound at a guess um, yep. or seven or eight pound um and that's what i got it on well yeah, probably lucky yeah. that he actually yeah oh, it on for that. sure yeah 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 so that's and i had so to retie a heap of nymphs for that particular area because like you needed heavy gauge hooks and stuff because i did in amongst those fish on the point one two, i did straighten a couple of hooks so that that yeah. line tip is actually strong yeah yeah right so but, um, that that style of fishing though that's basically walking and stalking hey it's not blind yeah, yeah. fishing the whole day nah, you're just nah, nah. walking Yep, just looking, yeah. So like I hunting. do lots of that, yeah, yeah. Whether it's, you know, the kingies down home, I only like to sight fish for them and, um, uh, yeah, like um, what are the, oh, the browns and then um, like carping and stuff like that. I think there's just this real enjoyment out of seeing the fish before it eats and, yeah, I think you could fish for days blind at those spots and never hook one of those big ones. I think you're wasting a lot of time, so. Yeah. Yeah. I um I do a bit of backwater stuff on the tumut and it there's yep. it's a different style of fishing when you can spot them, stalk them, and cast to them. It's just it's different to then yeah, blind yeah. fishing. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's good fun. Yeah, yeah. So just on to big cod and the Murray River. Um, yep. Everyone would know you as a big cod legend. Um, I don't know. I don't even know if you know how many big fish you've caught, especially you know fish over the meter. Do you have a tally? Do you count or no? No. I no, I'd have no idea. Um, Do you know what your PB yeah. is? Oh, like a guess uh, estimate. I, yeah, maybe a hundred and forty pound, hundred and thirty pound. I don't know. Like two big, like two people straining to lift. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. crazy. So yeah. Um. um anyway. Tips. I just want. I just want you to talk. Just ask a few questions on on fishing for big cod. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about the Murray River because that's basically where you're born and bred. Yeah. If you were to go out and chase big cod on the Murray, is there anything that that you could share with people that'll give them sort of a helping hand? Say they 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 know what they're doing. They're cod fishers, but something yep. for chasing those big fish in that big water. Well, yeah, you need to fish for a big fish. Um, so. Uh, I like to use, um, it's interesting, uh, the only thing that doesn't fit this mould is the um, Storm Arashi, um, but like a big lure, like this year my best lure was a one ounce twin spin with size 8 Colorados, um, very shiny, I, I really like shiny Colorado blades, so I use like a, a buy um, from lure parts, like a regal finish one, which has like got a lot more sheen than the, the standard ones. Yeah. Um, and then like an eight inch, um, paddle tail plastic. So it's a big profile bait. Um, and that was the best one this year. Um, and you just need to keep grinding out until you get a chance. So, um, some days it's really easy, but, um, you know, I'll pick a stretch of timber, um, whether that starts at the boat ramp or, you know, whether I'll travel somewhere to, to fish it, but, You've just got to fish every single little bit the whole entire day until you get a bite. Yeah. Which is hard for people to do. 
um, and you, you know, stopping. I always took it uh, talk about percentages and getting the rhythm, and you know, uh, say say like you're fishing a spinner bait, but you're getting snagged often, so you're better off fishing a crankbait, like a big crankbait, because you're not getting snagged as often, and that means you'll have more casts for the day because it only takes one cast to catch the fish of a lifetime, and the more casts you take out of your day's fishing, um, the less chance you've got of actually catching that big fish and the same goes for fishing a really big lure like if you can't cast a big lure efficiently for an extended period of time or any amount of time then you're better off fishing a small lure because you're going to get it in the right places for more often and then increasing your chances of catching that big fish so it's slightly different to everyone you can't actually say here this is the recipe for a big big fish for you because everyone's slightly different you know some yeah. people catch them on orgy plows and some people only catch them on like big monster swim baits so it's it's slightly different for everyone um but i think the biggest thing is using your the percentages of your cast so you've got to be able to keep going for a really long time um you've got to fish really good looking snags so um don't waste time uh fishing uh like just the, the old, I'll chuck out the middle of the river just to see. I don't know whether you fish with guys like that that are just like, yeah, oh, yeah, I'll just, yeah. you know, chuck her out here. And it's like, dude, you, you've your got time. the whole thing like right in front of you and you're yeah. going to cast out there. Like, yeah. Um, so, you know, when you're efficient, um, you just, you, you maximize your chances of that big bite. Um, and, you know, you might waste 50 casts in a day um, and it only takes one cast to catch a big monster fish. So um, the more you can, I always talk to people that fish with me about getting the rhythm and you can almost feel, like I almost feel when you're going to get a bite, like there's chatter going on in the boat, um, the casts are happening like really fluidly, um, the whole thing's just working and then bang, you get your fish. Whereas you get days where, you know, you might be fishing where the wind's not in the right direction or, you know, old mate keeps getting snagged up and it's just not happening. Like the flow's just not there. Um, and it's, I probably, I probably think about it a lot differently to a lot of people because it's not like here, here's the best lure and the best location go and do it. Like it, there's probably a bit more of a mental thing for me as to far as like getting the whole thing happening to get that bite. Yeah, yeah, I totally um, agree. I totally understand what you mean about the rhythm. It's yeah. massive, isn't it? It is, you know, and where, yeah, it doesn't matter where you're fishing. Um, I think that's very important. And if you're going to catch a big fish, you need to fish in big fish waters. Um, it's probably the, probably the biggest thing, but getting that rhythm, getting the flow happening, working out what's right for you. It's like the, the whole fast water um, stuff up the top end of the Murray, um, yep. lots of people catch big fish on surface lures there because it's the easiest lure to fish for the longest period of time. Yep. So the big fish eat it. Whereas if it was, you know, down the lower end, um, you know, a subsurface lure is very easy to fish. So that's an easy lure to fish for a long time. And that's the one that's going to get the bites. So yeah, it's, it's all about, so you're saying it's all about using the lure that's going to maximize the time in the zone or in the, the period where the cod is actually going to eat it rather than wasting your time using something that's not going to get you the result. 100%, yeah. But it's not because that lure doesn't work. It's just because of the environment, like you just yeah. explained. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that that's you almost need to... That, that's the other thing that happens too is people get um, lure fever and, you know, every time you 
ch- change the lure, um, you're wasting time as well. Like, and I find, you know, if if I tie the the best sessions I'll have, if I tie that big spinnerbait on and I'll fish it all day, at some point it's going to get eaten by a big fish and I just need to stick with it if it's working efficiently until that bite happens. Right. Um, you know, and the more you change and the more you put your was on the was on yourself and that the less chance you've actually got that that big fish is going to eat that lure. Right. So you're saying that you know that lure works, you know they'll eat it and the biggest tick of approval is that it's not snagging, it's in the zone, it's in the spot, so just stick with it because yep. it's the time. Yep. So, to, so for you, is the time on the water the biggest, the biggest point to success? Do you think? Yeah, hundred percent. He he who gets to cast the most catches the most. I reckon. Yeah, and if so you're casting in, well, keep going. I was, I was going to say if you're casting in places where there's big fish, then obviously you're going to catch lots of big fish. Yeah. So those photos you put up, big fish. People go, well, how does he get so many big fish? Is it? It's the main thing is time. Yeah. Yeah, I just use my day, like I treat it like a work day, like and from the moment it starts to get light, I'm out there chucking lures at snags, whether it's, you know, nowadays we fish big, it doesn't matter where it is, we fish a big surface lure till like 10 o'clock, 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, yep. um, and then I'll fish either a big spinnerbait, uh, a mumbler, like a chatterbait, or a... Um, uh, like a big Muldoon crankbait um, yep. or an Arashi. Uh, and then once four o'clock comes around, um, on goes the surfacer again until the end of the day. Um, and then the next day, we go out and do the same thing again. And, you know, you might not get a bite the first day or you might, but then the next day you probably get a bite. At some point, it's going to happen. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, how, how I'm curious, how many times do you sit down for a feed or do you like shove something in while the lure's sinking and chew and then keep winding? Yeah, pretty much. I do, sometimes I like to sit on the bank and, you know, it depends on how good the fishing's been. Um, sit on the, like, tie up and, you know, have a feed or whatever. But if I haven't caught one, I'll just be casting the whole time. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. So, <laughs> cast- in oh, winter, gonna, go that again. Go oh, again. no, so I was going to say casting and drinking coffee, basically. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, in winter, you're on the Murray. Just for, just give people an example. Um, you're at a spot. Uh, people will fish for half a day and go, this sucks, let's go home, right? It's yep. winter. What what do you, what's, a, what's an average session? How many days, how many hits, you know, for like if you go for, say most people will go for a weekend or three days. Is yep. that enough to go, that's a crappy spot or you know, is three days, should you get a hit once a day? What's average for winter? Uh, I would say an opportunity a day. Um, One opportunity. Yeah. So, you know, you might have uh, like on a weekend, you generally don't get, you might get a bite Friday afternoon if you get up there, but I don't think that the fishing is that good after say 3.30 on the Murray. Yep. Um, But uh, during a Saturday and Sunday, if the weather's really good, you should get a bite each day and that might be that the all of Saturday you get nothing and then you get two chances on the Sunday. Like it's, I think it's divvied up in that. And then, you know, you might, um, like this year, it was a perfect example. I did um, uh, a week on the river. Um, I was chasing a big surface fish. I caught fish 
during the middle of the day on subsurface lures, but I really wanted a big one on a um, surface lure. Yeah. And I fished morning and night for seven days, and then I got like a meter twenty something on the surface on the seventh morning. Seven days. Yeah. So and, and that's but, yeah, I got the photo. I got the fish that I wanted. And everyone's like, oh, how'd you do that? And it's like, well, I just went out there and I did it until it happened. And that's just what happened. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. is there a point where you question yourself on like the fourth day where you're like, um, something could be wrong with the luck? Like, is there, is what I want to ask is, is weather a big, weather and environmental conditions, are they a big player for you when chasing those fish? Will you Can you go out there and go, yeah, it's not going to happen at all because this is wrong or this is wrong or is it just about yep. grinding out any weather, any condition? No, no, 100%. You know when it's not going to happen. And uh, I will always question myself when I'm cod fishing regardless of whether I'm going to catch a big one or not. You're <laughs> always stand there in the boat just questioning why, you know, the existence of life and you know solving the world's problems and all that sort of stuff but if the water's good and the flow is good in the murray so if it's not flowing too much um this is say from the pool water weir so anywhere below uh like meldura below um right down to the mouth of the murray right um, yep if if the water's clear um so you can see more than 500 mil Right, half a um, meter. Yeah, yeah, half a meter. Um, and uh, the um, the weather's it has to be good weather. So still and sunny is the best. So if you get a, a frosty morning and then a sunny day, if you fish hard throughout that day, you should definitely get an opportunity. Yeah. Um, but if the weather's shitty, um, you won't get an opportunity generally. Like for some for some reason. You might get one, so it's always worth fishing those times because what else are you going to do? But, <laughs> um, yeah, if it's still and sunny, you've got to make the most of those days and just cast your to your arms fall off to get that opportunity and do it really well. And like I said before, you know, if you're snagging up on a spinnerbait and it's not quite happening for you, put on a hard body so that, um, or like a crankbait, so that you, you get the flow happening and you can work through those snags because it'll be first first or second or third cast into a snag um, that you'll get nailed by a big one. So, you know, not dwelling on each snag too long. You know, you do a few down that generally in the Murray, because of the flow, the fish will be sitting upstream. Yeah. Um, but I will chuck like a few down one side, a few across the front, a few down the other side, go to the next one, do that, and just keep working through the snags because when you get one that's lit up, um, it'll it'll be very, very quick that they'll be onto it. Like as soon as it lands, they know that it's there um, and they're going to decide whether they yeah. want to eat it or not. Yeah, That's interesting, eh? Because a lot of people will say winter's about, you know, hundreds of casts. But that's how I, exactly how you explained it is how I fish, you know, through the warmer months. And I kind of can't help myself but move along quick because I always think you've got better chance of finding a hungry fish rather than annoying a fish. So you do the same. It's, it's a few casts and then move. Yep. I'd rather, that's my variable, like the variable's not the lure, um, it's the snag, like, so I know that my lure's a new lure on each snag, um, so rather than chopping and changing lures or whatever, or doing 30 or 50 casts or whatever some people say they do, I just do like a maximum of probably 10 or a dozen casts at each snag, you know, by the time you do a few down the front, a few across the side, and you probably do a dozen casts, um, and that can happen reasonably quickly, and then you go on to the next one, you know. 
And what's the water like down there? Are you fishing deep water still? So you're basically not casting tight to a log. You're kind of, kind of casting along its length and winding it and covering the water. Is that like what's the kind of depth and the structure down that way? Uh, I don't fish anything over like seven meters. Um, a lot between like one and seven meters. Yeah. I really like like three to four meters is really good. Um, but any good looking snag, um, in that depth of water, I don't like fishing really, really deep snags. Um, so yeah, any, um, any snag that's lying in like one to seven meters of water is a very good chance of having a cod. Um, chances are if it looks like it's got a big cod on it, it probably does. Um, so you can just go and punch a few casts at it before moving on to the next one. You can always revisit one. Yeah. That's a really good technique. Like they, they think about it, like. They, you know, did they miss out on something or so you can, you can quite often fish a whole run of timber, particularly down the lower end. You can fish a whole run of timber, um, and then just turn around and fish it all again. And you'll pick up a fish off of one of the snags that you've already cast. So do you, do you pick your run and then pick a section that's got good sticks so that you're not wasting time electricing between them and then you pick up and boat to the next one? Is that what you do? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So yeah. I'll start like you know, um, as soon as you say, if you've got a sandbar and then the water starts to deepen up and then the snags start, yeah. I'll start at the very, the very first one. And then I'll fish every single one until the water shallows up on the last one. And then I'll either refish that or go on to, you know, go to the other side and fish the next deeper stretch or, um, boat up to the next one. But I think my, always my best days fishing are ones that you never put the petrol motor on yeah just you're just casting the entire time in the electric you know you work through one side you go the other side and every single moment of the day is just your lure swimming in good country yeah so the the winning secret to that not using the petrol is the fact that you've done more casts for the day yeah, 100%. The, the electric motors for fishing and the petrol motors for driving away from fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So what makes, like, that's I don't understand that sometimes. Unless you've got, like, the best spot that you know that you can drive there, like, what's the point of driving away from really good timber? Like, that's in yeah. good colored water. It's, it, you know, it's good. You, you can go, but there's no reason why you might catch a monster. I've caught, I've actually caught really good fish casting back at boat ramps sometimes. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, so like driving away is just, it does yeah. waste time. Yeah. yeah, so if you've got good water, and obviously if you go to a spot you've never been to before, you you have a look around, you're like, oh, there's not much timber here. You do a bit of a boat up or down. If it's not real great, it's not going to be one of your memorable spots to go back to, is it? You want lots of timber, you know, in yeah. a small area. Yeah, yeah, but like I don't know where you'd go. There's a few spots down the bottom end that you'd go that there might not be heaps of good logs, but um, the most Murray's of- weird. Yeah, most of it has because the Murray's a bit weird because of the uh, the the weir setup. Like you get like natural sort of locks where all the snags are exposed, and then um, the lock above it that's uh, say five, three or four or five meters. Um, above pool level or what used to be the actual natural river level um all the snags are under the water so um those sorts of areas they take a little bit more time to learn but there may not be a lot of um snags on the surface but there is actually a lot of snags down deep there's not many parts of the murray that are totally devoid of snags yeah right that's what i was going to ask you is uh, most of the areas you fish are the logs exposed so you can see them so do you fish them probably 80 percent of the time or is it like 50 50 some of those pools that you fish that they're just totally submerged and you use your sounder uh i'm yeah i never i actually take my sounder out of the boat during cod season 
Yeah, right. So I never, I never, never fish with a sounder for cod. Um, I don't know. I always had this theory that they pick up on the ping of the sounder. Um, yeah. But yeah, I I'm very fortunate to have spent that much time on all the stretches that I fish that I could tell you um, where they are, where the snags are. Yeah. Yeah. How good's that memory? It gets yeah. handy, isn't it? Yeah. And I, you know, I got to see the Murray when you could walk across it as well so there's lots of places where i can go you know there's a big snag under the water there and no one actually knows that it's there yeah yeah, yeah that's there's interesting one... go again oh i was gonna say there's one particular stretch um that i fish that we fish that's um called sunken timber and it's along this nondescript bank you'd never ever stop there um but i was lucky enough to see all these old red gum um uh, i think they're actually chopped off um, but anyway, when the river was dry, um, there was like, there's probably eight of them in this one particular bank. You'd never, ever stop there, but we've pulled, I pulled one fish of a hundred pound off of it. And I think we've pulled 10 other like real big bangers off of there in the last, um, few years. Um, That's crazy. And no one knows where it is. Like, it's so good. And there's, there's a couple of bits, um, before that are exposed that people fish, but there's this other bit that no one has ever really, I've never, ever seen anyone down there. And it's one of those spots I actually, you know, if I hear a boat coming, I'll pull the electric up and go somewhere else just to keep that one under wraps. But yeah, yeah ne- never have the sounder in the boat, eh? That's so interesting. Yeah. Okay, so that, then you reckon it's that ping. So you just basically go by feel and what you've seen when it's lower. What do you, what do, you do in a place you've never fished before, sounder-wise, or say a lake? Still don't uh, use it? Uh, I'd like to have my um, sounder in a lake. Like I've only done, I've really only cod fished at Eildon a couple of times. Yeah. Um, three times I think I've been to Eildon. Um, and I still fish the bank, so I was still looking for snags and I... Yeah, it's hard because you're cod fishing, you're actually fishing out the front of the boat, um, so it's not about what's underneath Underneath, you. yeah. Yeah, like probably different with the new sounders, but um, I, I don't have one of those, so yeah, yeah I, just, I just work it out with my lure. Yeah, it's an interesting way to fish and obviously works, so it's just about, you know, using, it, it depends what you're most comfortable with, obviously. Yeah, you got to have good memory. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. remember things, yeah. Yeah, so it's time on the water and you do that time so you remember things. Yeah. Yeah, nice. And I, you do a fair bit of stuff out of kayaks too. Why? Why the kayaks? Like you, you must really enjoy. It. It's a different, different level and style of fishing, isn't it? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, that was all through Big Angry Fish. So um, because Viking Kayaks was a partner of the show, um, uh, I got the offer of a kayak. And I must admit that I'd always been like, well, I've got a boat, so why would I need a kayak? But um, yeah, I really, I do enjoy the whole kayak kayak thing and only when the kayak is the it's the most accessible uh, uh it's the Platform best way for to that water, yeah. The water yeah so anywhere you can't get a boat in um like the darling was fantastic in the kayak because it's there's so many places you can't get a boat in but um you know it's so easy just to slide the kayak down the bank and um particularly getting through shallow water and all that sort of stuff but the whole uh casey and like my wife and i did the um the five-day mega trip down the Darling, which was yeah. that was just super specky, and a lot of that's dry now, and that was more for the experience more than anything. Like we've we've done a similar area in the boat, but it was really cool to you know just keep kayaking around every corner um, for five days straight. That was really fun. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Um, I don't want to keep you too much longer, mate, because I know everyone, right. your, your time's important. Um, before we move on to the next thing, I just want to go back to what we were talking about, the big cod, just something I remembered that interested me. That weather thing, I just want to solidify to people, if, if it is bad weather, like you said, that clear still stuff's so key for the big winter stuff. If it is poor weather, like overcast, low, you know, like a low pressure coming through, do you, do you not bother or you still go grind it out and try to learn what you can in those situations? Uh, if it depends, like if I'm there, then I will, but, um, you know, you that's prob- left. yeah, that's probably a good day to have off. Um, if I, if I was at home and the water was good and I had the option to drive up there or not, I wouldn't. Um, yep. but you know, if you're up the river and you're keen to have a fish, you might go out for like morning until like one or two o'clock and if nothing's happened, then you can it. Cause you can feel it like when you're on the river and it's blowing and it's cold and, it's yeah it's just not going to happen yeah, nah, for some yeah. reason it and might it always might i'm always an optimistic that and that that's one rule it's like when people say oh will this lure work and it's like well it might um yep. so if that works for you then cast it so i'm not going to say don't go out on bad weather because you, you might catch i always remember when it was really really good fishing back in the day i caught some of my like absolute biggest fish um in the bad weather but mm-hmm. In years gone by, it's definitely been still sunny, beautiful winter weather. That's the, you know, that's a real key to getting big fish. Yeah. And is a part of that the fact that you can control the boat and be more stealthy and can control your lure properly because it's glassed out, as well as the fact that they feed better? Yep. 100%. Yeah. Yep. Cool. It's nicer to fish. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Um, so, do you have one catch that's just visually stuck in your head over these many years one particular fish i'm sure uh, you probably don't because you've had that many experiences but i like to ask the question is there (laughs) one in particular or not really um there's probably a lot there's probably one missed fish that i always think about like many many years ago because um like before surface luring got surface luring got really big um it was always such an unknown about big fish, and I'd always caught really good fish um, uh, in smaller waters. At surface luring, like, you know, 10 years ago, it was all about small small waters. Like, no one ever really caught big bangers on surface lures. Yeah. Um, and I remember we tried and we tried to catch big ones in the Murray for, for no result. Like, it was just a waste of time. Um, and I just so di- distinctly remember this one afternoon um, – uh, a friend of mine, we'd been fishing um, during the day and the fishing was good and that was all good and he had to go home. So I dropped him off at the ramp and I thought I'm going up to, because we got these big magnificent cliffs down at home um, and this was in lock two, lock two. Um, yeah. So I dropped him off at the ramp and then went up um, to this uh, cliff and there was like, it was beautifully calm. All the birds were there, the bonies were jumping. Um, and I think second cast with this surface lure, um, this, like, it was like someone dropped a fridge from, like, right <laughs> up the top of the cliff. This thing just, like, it was just the meanest, biggest uh. explosion. Um, and it didn't hook up, and it scared the absolute bejeebas out of me. Like, I was shaking, um, and, yeah, just all those years ago, and it's just one take that I've never, ever forgotten. Like, there's been lots of special captures, but and it's really... I knew you were going to ask that question. Um, yeah. And I couldn't put my finger on anything, but, you know, that if 
that was just a story that sprung to mind. I just, I'll never ever forget that bite. There was no one around, no one else saw it, and wow. I don't know how many people get big bites down that end of the Murray, but um, that was just like a behemoth of a fish, and um, yeah, I'll never forget that one. The fridge cut, eh? <laughs> the fridge cut. It was so, uh, it was just intense. Yeah. Have Have you had them hit it that hard since? You reckon, or just not quite uh, to that scale? Uh, I remember. Um, yeah, not on the surface. Um, no. Oh, no, no. I did have one at Cobram this year that um, uh, I was actually, I was fishing with a mate and I had a friend of mine from South Australia on speakerphone um, on the floor of the boat and we're chatting away and I chucked out across this front of this snag and this fish just exploded on it that hard, like a big one, um, that my mate heard it through the phone back in South Australia. That's crazy. Yeah, so, um, but um, yeah, nothing like that. I think the unknown always makes it that little bit better too. So, you know. You don't uh, forget it, yeah, eh? Yeah, young me out on the Murray all by myself, just about dark. And yeah, it was um, it was frightening for sure. That's crazy. Mm. So in terms of surface fishing, do you have a specific retrieve with your surface lures or is it just casting in, wind it out, medium pace? Uh, no, I like a nice plop. So it's just got a, you can... Uh, Muldoons are really good. The new blister tremors are really good. They have a really nice, just slow plop because you want yep. it just enough to make it um, work efficiently. If that's like, because you'd always, I, I would rather wind them slower, um, but just enough to get that nice plop happening. When you're in faster water, it's faster, but down like the lower end where it's still, you just want that nice plop. Um, but the biggest, most important change in surface fishing is 30 pound fluorocarbon. Why is that? Because it has a little bit of stretch in it. And that so, helps with the hookup, obviously. Yeah. So, um, and you point the rod directly at the lure. So, um, you don't have your rod off to the side. You don't have your rod pointing down to the water. You have the line, um, well, the rod pointing directly at the, the lure. And you can almost feel that the lure starts working off the reel rather than the rod bouncing around. Yeah. Um, and with the 30 pound fluorocarbon, because it all happens so quickly um, and so um, like surprisingly that you instantly, it doesn't matter who you are, you will pull the rod or you'll, you know, you yeah. go to strike and you either get him or you won't. But yeah. this was something that came to me last year um, after a good friend of mine landed a massive one at Cobram on fluorocarbon because he wanted to be like the bass guys. Yeah. Um, and I tried it and with the rod pointing technique and the fluorocarbon i haven't missed a fish since no um, way yeah so i always fish 30 pound fluorocarbon for surface now i don't do it for subsurface or anything like that um but 30 pound fluorocarbon point the rod directly at it and my theory is because you get a lot of fish that hook on the back treble yep and the, the fish comes up and explodes on it and either just sucks it in or spits it out straight away and it just gives you that tiny little bit where um you know you reef the rod back the fish is pulling in and it just gives you that little bit of stretch that the this the smallest bit of hook can find its mark yep. and then when when the fish closes its mouth and you're still pulling it just is enough to be able to hook the fish Right. So you're, yeah. do you strike now with the fluoro or do you still try not to strike and wait and then lift or uh, do you continue to wind or it just happens too quick? It just happens. Yeah. yeah. I think with those real big ones in like in the Murray, it's, you know, too it's, quick. So, it's too quick and 
you never expect it. Like, it's, yeah. you know, so I think that just gives you that little percentage. And it's like um, the big one that Scotty Gray got with me. Um, that was massive. End of last year. Yeah. And um, I tell you what, like if he didn't have 30-pound fluorocarbon on and he had just straight braid with a um, different rod angle, he would have ripped that lure so fast that it fishes me out because it, it just – it like it exploded on the lure yeah um and it just gives you that brief moment where you know because your rod's pointing at it you've got that time when you lift up it's just it's straight for that little little moment you're not already like halfway into your you know your um your lift yeah yeah totally yeah yeah. that's really interesting really interesting so so do you reckon do you prefer to fish surface in slower water or do you you think it works just as well in faster water for like bringing up the big cod yep just as well in big water i actually caught my first big bangers um in the fast water and i didn't think it worked as well in the lower end where there's lots of bonies and all that sort of stuff um it's obviously not as good a technique as fishing a spinnerbait or a subsurface lure out um, west, like a out crankbait. Way yeah, out yeah. Way. Right. yeah, yeah. So, um, but it's just a case of what you want to do. Um, and if you put the time in, you will get those those big fish to eat off the surface. Yeah, right. And in terms of the crankbaits you're talking about, you're talking about like big, hard, like big diving hard bodies? Yeah, so I, I, well, I only have in my box now. Um, I have, yeah, I have heaps. I take a heap of lures with me, but I'll cast the shallow bib, um, big mong. Yeah. Um, and I will cast an arashi. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I don't know whether you're fishing an arashi, but that is the straightest, most efficient lure, um, straightest casting, most efficient lure, uh, swims straight, uh, casts straight. It does all the things that it needs to do. It's a thin profile lure. Um, so the easy fish, to fish eat it too. really well. Yeah, you can fish it all day. You can just punch it into everywhere you need it to go over and over and over again. Um, and it's just yeah. I I when I first got sent them, I was like, there's no way that that's um, going to catch fish. But I I would almost say that for the lower end of the Murray, that's probably the best uh, casting lure you can tie on. Even for big fish, for you for Even your for giant whoppers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, nice. Um, yeah. Awesome, mate. I really appreciate your time um, and just sharing your knowledge. I could, I reckon, I could do another ten episodes with you and ask like a, <laughs> a million more questions. Um, also, I just want to say, um, who's behind the camera for your for your photos, other than your tripod? Yeah. Because um, you have a great photographer. Yeah, well, it's it does range for a lot of people uh, for a lot of photos, but I would say you know eighty percent is my dear wife Casey. Um, uh, and then cod photos like this year, I had a few different people, um, but I, I would say you know ninety, yeah, eighty or ninety percent of those were me with me little old tripod hanging off the side of the boat. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, fair so, enough. Yeah. Oh, Casey does a good job. She's um, she does really well, and I'm I'm really keen to actually talk to her at one stage in the future because she loves her fishing just as much as you, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. If if it's you know fly fishing for trout and rivers, she's all over it. Yeah, nice. And Casey actually ties flies as well, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. Yeah, she ties hundreds of flies all the time. So she just filled out a heap of um, uh, orders that came in. And um, yeah, she she uh, she's very crafty. So when we're driving in the van, she'll be knitting socks, which is like five different knitting needles, knitting socks, and the flies that she ties now are just really beautiful. Um, yeah, beautiful trout flies. And people can buy those. Yeah, yep. So she she's on Instagram. So if you just contact contact her on Instagram, and she's also on Facebook as well. So just contact her, tell her what you want, and she'll tie them up. 
Yeah, cool, cool. For anyone who's keen on flies, yeah, get on to Casey for them. Um, Mate, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your trip, travels, and fishing for the future. I've got um, two two more questions. Well, the one before the last is where to for you now? Uh, like this very in life, moment. mate. In oh, life. in where, life. Where? What's the What's the goal? Uh, is it just it's... more fishing, more lo- like life, and just enjoying every moment? Like, what is it for you? What do you want to achieve in the it, next ten years? Uh, it all depends. Well, I want to have kids, so um, you know, the fishing's probably going to take a bit of a halt in like three or so years' time. Um, yeah, but it just depends on whether our plan comes through which will keep us on the road for a couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. But if that doesn't, you know, it, the plan sort of to fish um, full-time until sort of mid-September um, and then I'll probably, you know, end up going because uh, my father's run a family business for a long time. So mm-hmm. it was always the plan for me to go back and take over the business. Yep. Um, so that might be a possibility. But if this other plan goes through, then, um, yeah, it could see us on the road for a couple of years mm, just whacking stuff. fish full-time. So Good stuff. I hope it happens for you, mate. I hope it happens Thank for you. you. Yeah. Um, last of all, what's one thing that you could share with people, one lesson for life? Do you have one thing that you could share with the listeners um just enjoy what you're doing and be be nice to people and pick up your bloody rubbish i would say is another thing so yes you know i think um we're so lucky we're so so lucky in australia um there's so many places we can go there's so many things we can do so you know let's treat it well let's keep it beautiful and just enjoy it yeah Great. Very well said, mate. Very well said. I appreciate your time once again, um, and I hope everyone got a lot out of that. Thanks heaps, Lubin, and I'm sure I'll be talking to you in the future, mate. Cheers, Grace. And there you have it, guys. What about that for an episode? Lubin just explained everything I asked. He unfolded, shared what he knew, and didn't shy away from any question, even when we got right into techniques and what he does. He's a really good bloke, legend of a fellow. I talked to him off uh, recording, and you know he's just a downright good Aussie fellow who loves his fishing and just involves himself in it that much because it's just his true passion and it's great to have people like that in the fishing industry that are happy to share. Now, at one stage in that episode, Lumen talked about a project that he was working on that could be a part of his near future and we recorded this uh, episode about two or three weeks ago and since then, it has come to fruition. So, what has happened is he is now filming an online show and it's called The Full Scale Fishing Adventure. So, he's only just released the fact that it's going to be coming out. The Full Scale Fishing Adventure, you can follow the Instagram page for the show, um, jump on Instagram it's the Full Scale Fishing Adventure. If you're not sure, you can jump on and follow Lubin on Instagram at Lubin underscore Pfeiffer. That is L-U-B-I-N underscore P-F-E-I-F-F-E-R. And if you're not sure, just check out his name in the show for how you spell that. But at Lubin Pfeiffer is his Instagram page and you can follow his new project, this new online show at the Full Scale Fishing Adventure and I wish Lubin all the best with this adventure, this show and the future and what it involves and I'm sure I will get Lubin 
back on uh, the podcast in you know months down the track and we will talk about more because like I said, I could have talked to him for so long. He's just such a knowledgeable bloke and he's happy to share and he just loves fishing. Now, in terms of ordering flies from Casey, uh, you can order them through Instagram uh, from her as well and you can follow her at caseymatson.fishing. So, it's Casey, C-A-S-E-Y, M-A-T-T-S-O-N dot fishing. That's uh, on Instagram. So you can jump on there, send her a message if you are keen on getting some really, really well-tied flies. You can even follow her and her fishing adventures as well. So follow both of them as they travel, you know, around Oz, the southern part of Australia, um, and they're living life to the fullest and loving their fishing. Like I said, guys, you can check out the full show notes on socialfishing.com.au. You can check out all the other episodes as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. Give us a like share it with a friend the more people we can get listening to these the better and we can get more and more you know really well known and accomplished anglers on to share their stories with you and that's what we want so share this grab the link on the podcast app that you're listening to it on share it to a mate send it flick it through and say check out this episode have a listen it's so easy to listen to these just in the car or wherever you're traveling if there's people you want us to interview send them through um, we, we need to know who you want to listen to. We've got a lineup of people we want to interview, but if there's people, this might be some people we've never heard of. If there's people that you follow that you'd really love to hear them speak, we've already had a few guys send through, you know, you should interview this person, this person, but just send them through. If there's someone you want us to interview, please let us know. And as always, review, rate, and leave a comment on the podcast. Let us know if you're enjoying it and what you want us to talk about in the future. Once again, I want to thank Lubin. He's an absolute legend. Thank him for his time. It was the longest podcast yet. He just shared everything and answered every question I asked him. He's a great bloke and as I said, I wish him all the best for the future. So, I want to thank Lubin once again and I thank you guys. Thank you guys for tuning in and supporting us and listening to the podcast. We get so many comments from you guys saying you're loving it and you want us to keep up the good work. So, And I hope this episode met everyone's idea of good work and we will keep producing the good work that you guys are keen on. That's it for this episode, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Get out there. Enjoy fishing. Enjoy the great weather, the summer weather, and chase that fish that you're after and try that technique. Try something different and basically try and achieve your goals. Thanks once again, guys, and I'll be talking to you very soon.